0: where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, October 2nd, we are starting a new series on sharper iron. It is called The New Covenant in Christ. During this series, we will be studying the book of Hebrews. Now, if you've been listening to Sharper Iron recently, you know that we've just finished a journey through the book of Leviticus. And maybe you're wondering why we're flipping almost cover to cover in the Bible, from the third book all the way to the 58th book. As we read the book of Hebrews together, I think that progression will become clear, as the author of Hebrews leads us to hear the voice of God speaking to us still today. As God once called out to Moses in the book of Leviticus, So God still speaks to us now through his son, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment, not only of Leviticus, but of everything God spoke through the prophets. Today's episode will introduce the book of Hebrews as a whole and study the first text, Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. John Kleinig. Dr. Kleinig is Professor Emeritus of Australian Lutheran College in Adelaide, South Australia, He is also the author of the commentary on the book of Hebrews in the Concordia Commentary series from Concordia Publishing House. Dr. Kleinig, welcome to Sharper Iron.
1: It's wonderful to be with you.
0: So, Dr. Kleinig, as I mentioned in the introduction, we've just been studying the book of Leviticus. Your name came up often during that study, as many of the guests were blessed by the commentary you wrote on that book. So maybe just to, to help us bridge the gap here on Sharper Iron, how do Leviticus and Hebrews relate to each other?
1: Well, both of them focus on the divine service. The divine service of the Old Covenant, uh, uh, how we meet with God, and how God uh, cleanses us from sin and makes us holy, and what that entails for us. Uh, The uh, book of Hebrews uh, gives us, uh, 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 unpacks for us uh, the theology of worship in the New Covenant, uh, which is focused, as you know, the New Covenant, we think immediately of Jesus talking about Holy Communion. This is the blood of the New Covenant. Okay, The New Covenant, Old Covenant, Old Covenant, Divine Service, New Covenant, Divine Service. There's no other part of the New Testament that explores uh, the theology of worship as fully as the book of Hebrews.
0: So things like, as you said, the divine service from the book of Leviticus, the matter of the blood of the sacrifices, the role of the priest, all of those are going to be important background for us to keep in mind as we think about Hebrews. Are there other things that we really need to remember from Leviticus and and that whole Old Testament life of worship that are really going to be important for
1: reading Hebrews? Uh, Just all the time, you almost need to have Leviticus open before you, uh, uh, even where it's not quoted. Uh, There's allusions to it all the time, uh, particularly with the uh, question of atonement for sin and what that means and meeting with God in the divine service. But uh, Jesus as priest and we as holy people, that's what it's all about.
0: All right. So, again, hopefully that move from Leviticus to Hebrews will continue to make more and more sense as we read through this book of Hebrews. I've been calling it a book thus far Dr. Kleining, this is how we often speak about the sections in the Scriptures, the book of Leviticus, the book of Hebrews, Uh, but each book often has its own particular type of literature. So when we think about the book of Hebrews, what type of literature are we reading?
1: Yes, um, uh, traditionally the book of Hebrews is not called the book, it's the epistle to the Hebrews. Um, Now, um, it is uh, epistle means letter, so it's letter to the Hebrews, but it's not a letter in its form. Uh, it's couched as a letter, but it's a letter to the di- uh, with a difference, because the author here is writing this letter uh, to a congregation or a number of congregations to be read in the divine service. Uh, in fact, it is, if you like, a written sermon that the local pastor would read read the Sunday after he received this letter. So it is a written sermon to be read uh, in a particular congregation or a number of congregations. It can be a circular letter uh, uh, in the divine service. So it takes the place of the sermon. Or in fact, it is the sermon for the Sunday. And that comes out so, quite... Keep going. Yes, it comes out quite clearly uh, in chapter thirteen verse twenty two at the end, where the author says uh, talk talks about him having written a word of exhortation or a word of encouragement I appeal to you, brothers, bear with me uh, bear with my word of exhortation word of encouragement now um, uh, encouragement exhortation um that uh, uh, the words that lie behind there refer to a particular style of preaching. Uh, not so much uh, no, uh, exegetical, expository preaching, uh, but a pastoral preaching. So you have uh, 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 the term encouragement, exhortation, used as uh, to refer to that kind of teaching, preaching. It's a word of encouragement. It's pastoral preaching." Hmm. So
0: as you said, it's a particular type of preaching. So it—it it is a sermon, although perhaps it may not sound exactly like the sermon that you hear on a Sunday morning, say in an American or even an Australian pulpit. But with a sermon, at least as I know sermons, there's usually a text. So is there a sermon text that the author has in mind in this,
1: in this sermon? Well, when you read it, it superficially there's many texts because I don't know any book of the New Testament that quotes so much scripture. Not only quoting it, but alluding to it. Um, I've never added them all up because it's hard to know where where, where it ends and where it begins. Uh, right. But uh, uh, in uh, now uh, it's a letter to the, to the Hebrews. It's addressed to Jewish Christian uh, congregation. And it's uh, these people obviously come out of the synagogue and the synagogue has influenced the way they do worship. And typically in the synagogue, uh, even to some extent the present day, there are three readings. There's a reading from the law, the Pentateuch. There's a reading from the prophets. Uh, and then you have a reading from the writings. Um, uh, most particularly the Psalms. And uh, uh, scholars have proposed, and I go along with it, there are three basic readings for this Sunday. First of all, there's the story of Melchizedek um, meeting with Abraham in Genesis 14. Then you have Jeremiah's prophecy of a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. And then you have a psalm. Now, there's two psalms that, you could say uh, are very very prominent. Uh, I think the basic psalm is Psalm 2 which is a cor- uh, a coronation psalm. The co- it was used at the coronation of Jewish kings and therefore is, and also messianic referring to the coronation of Jesus as king. Or Psalm 110 which is an enthronement psalm so it was used at the enthronement of, of a king. Um, but it uh, refers then to Melchizedek, who's both priest and king. And it's prophetic in that it, it uh, prophesies a, a, a king with a difference, a king who's also a priest. So those are the three basic texts. And if you have them before you, you can say, OK, here, this refers to uh, 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 the story of Melchizedek. This refers to the new covenant prophecy. This refers to... Psalm 2 or Psalm 110.
0: So with those three texts in mind, and as you said, also all the other numerous quotations and allusions that are found throughout this sermon, how, how does he tie them together? I know that's a really big question, but maybe just by way of summary, how does, how does he tie those sermon texts all together? What's the, what's the theme?
1: Ah, uh, Yes, the theme is uh, 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 God speaking, and that's brought up right in the front. Um, now, unlike a many uh, modern preachers and bad preachers who want you to listen to them and uh, 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 put themselves and their personality uh, before people and want uh, people to be drawn to them, the author of the Hebrews uh, steps aside and basically focuses on getting people to listen to the voice of God. The voice of God in the Old Testament and then the voice of Jesus in the New Testament and also the voice of the Holy Spirit. And so you get a, a, um, uh, a very interesting way that he quotes scripture. He doesn't say, it's written. He says, God says, the Son says, The Spirit says. And notice the present tense there. This is what God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are saying to you, are saying to the church here and now in this service. And we can see that it has that liturgical setting by the very end of the letter with its benediction and its greeting. Grace be with you all. And we know from elsewhere in the... uh, uh, outside the Scriptures, the New Testament, that that was the beginning, and the lead into the communion service. Uh, now we have the Lord be with you. Um, that's a variant. Grace be with you. The grace of Jesus be with you, and be with you now uh, in the in holy communion.
0: You you mentioned that the author steps aside so that those listening to this sermon would not hear him, but rather hear the voice of God speaking at that moment to them through the divine service. In terms of the author, which is the term you and I have both kept using stepping aside, he doesn't actually name himself within the letter. And this is a, I'm sure you, you know better than most that much ink has been spilled on this matter of the author of Hebrews. Can you just give us a brief introduction to those contours? I don't think we're going to
1: solve it here today. No. It's, the thing is, like much of so-called New Testament scholarship, it's speculative, and it's unimportant. It, the author deliberately doesn't name himself. But we know a, a few details about him. Number one, he refers to our brother Timothy. So he's a colleague of Timothy which means that he's a pastor, but he also belongs to a group of uh, uh, people in the early church who are not apostles, but apostolic legates, like Timothy or Luke or Mark. Let's, there's other, others too. There's Silas, there's Barnabas. Uh, they are apostolic legates. They work together with the apostles Uh, We know he's a teacher, a preacher. Um, I won't argue for that. He uses the ministerial we. that He he doesn't think of himself as a pastor by himself, but he's part of the uh, ministry, uh, the ministerial body. So he uses the inclusive we when he talks about himself and Timothy. We, if you like, we pastors, we... Uh, uh, leaders of the church Uh, we teachers Uh, he only mentions himself at the very end of the letter where he uses the I for the first time um, in referring to his plans to come uh, back to the congregation he addresses he's obviously their pastor and for some reason is no longer with them we can speculate why that is the case Uh, now just quite quickly, uh, who is he? Well, uh, the list is as long as my arm and longer. <laughs> uh, the uh, some in the early church had said he, uh, uh, people said it was uh, uh, Paul, but there's so much. The language isn't Pauline. Um, the Greeks different. Uh, uh, it's it's. Now, anybody who reads it closely and knows that Paul well knows that this is not the voice of Paul. We each have our distinctive voice and language. It could have been Paul. I'm not going to be dogmatic. But uh, the two best candidates are Clement, who was uh, a co-worker with Paul. He's mentioned in Philippians and who wrote a very, very interesting and far too little known uh, two letters from, he was the Bishop of Rome later uh, at uh, uh, from uh, 88 to 97 BC and he wrote two letters to a rather conflicted congregation in uh, Corinth. Uh, so Clement, uh, he seems to allude, there's, there's many, many parts of his two letters that uh, echo um, what's in uh, Hebrews. So he's my if I'd have opted for somebody speculative, I'd say it's him. The other possibility, and I won't go into the reasons why, is Luke. But look, it could have been Barnabas or Apollos or uh, Silas or who knows whom. But he'd have to be he'd have to be Jewish. Now there's something. Uh, I I know my Hebrew, uh, He's, uh, uh, and I know that he thinks not just like a Jew, but he, he he's familiar with um, uh, the whole of God's people, the uh, Jewish people. Mm.
0: Mm. It, and, and I think the way that you've described the theme of the letter, as we will see, about God speaking and the author stepping aside, then the fact that he doesn't name himself is is. Part of the point, I'm reminded a little bit of when we studied the Gospel of John, and and although we're, we're I think, a lot more certain that that's John, he yes. never refers to himself by name within the no. Gospel. He calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. That's that's enough for you to know about him. He's that's the one so- who Jesus loved. He wants you to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. So similarly, it would make perfect sense for the author, whomever he may be. He doesn't want you to know who he is. He wants you to hear God speaking instead. I think that's a, a great thing to to keep in mind yeah there's no personality cult here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. that's right. Okay. so all right, so that's that's information about the author. You've mentioned a few things with the author being very knowledgeable in terms of of Hebrew, the Old Testament, and I think you've said a few things about his potential congregation then what do what do we know about them? Well,
1: uh, uh, he uh, all the all the information. Uh, that we can gather, and the most concrete is that he talks, he says, those who are from Italy greet you. Uh, so it's, uh, uh, people who come from Italy are with him wherever he's writing from, and uh, uh, they know the people there that in the letter, and they send their greetings. So uh, it's most likely he's writing to uh, Christians in Rome, and we know from the end of Paul's letter to the Romans that there wasn't one congregation, but there were many congregations in Rome, house churches. And it seems to be that he's writing um, that that this author is a pastor, a leader, maybe a founder of a Jewish Christian um, uh, congregation or a number of Jewish Christian congregations in Rome. Uh, And that's backed up by the data. The earliest collection of manuscripts of the uh, whole of the uh, New Testament has uh, Hebrews, not at the end of the Pauline letters, but immediately after Romans. Now, uh, that's pretty good evidence that this is uh, uh, the the congregation. Uh, It's Jewish Christian. We know that because he assumes, without explaining, that they're familiar with the Old Testament and particularly the worship at the temple in Jerusalem, very complicated stuff. He doesn't explain it, he assumes that they know it.
0: Now with with this sermon, again thinking about it as a sermon, we've talked about the matter that there are texts throughout, what about the way that it's arranged? You know, most pastors, when they preach today, have a a process in mind. They want to take you from one place to another, and they've got a variety of steps that they use. How is this
1: sermon arranged? Yes, um, uh, it's arranged in a very complicated way. This man's a very, very sophisticated writer and speaker, very demanding. If I preach this sermon uh, (laughs) anywhere... In Australia, uh, uh, people would switch off fairly soon because it's so demanding. Not because it's not interesting, uh, but because it's so demanding. But uh, 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 it has a very complex structure. It has an introduction, chapter 1, verse 1. You have its theme. Um, In many and very long ago, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He's spoken to us through the Son. We'll have a closer look at that in a moment. And then the whole of uh, the first chapter leading up to chapter 2, verse 4. But the climax of the introduction is 2, verse 1. Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Now he's using the inclusive we, you, I as your pastor, uh, you as the congregate, uh, as my people, we need to pay even closer attention so that we don't drift away, not fall away, but drift away from uh, God, Jesus, and we lose everything that's been given to us. So you have an introduction, and then at the end of the letter, you have a conclusion, um, a liturgical conclusion. And then between that, you have a very complex pattern of exposition of various texts. And you can always pick what the text is, um, uh, 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 unpacking the text, and then uh, uh, its application in exhortation. Now, there are two kinds of exhortation, encouragement, pastoral applications, we can call it. There's pastoral applications. Uh, one kind of pastoral application is where he uh, addresses the congregation, you plural, with imperatives. Um, so, for example, the first instruction is: Therefore, holy brothers, it's a chapter three, verse one. You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle, and high priest of our confession. So, it's 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 a direct imperative, a direct appeal. Um, and here it is, uh, not just to, to listen to the Old Testament, and there's no New Testament uh, that we know yet, uh, but he said, okay, listen to, consider. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Okay, that's the one application, The using the uh, instructions that he gives to the people. The other one uh, kind of uh, exhortation actually structures the letter and uh, if you're going to look at it as a whole you need to pay attention to them. There are 12 uh, 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 let, uh, 12 inclusive hortatory appeals where he jumps out and he says let us this, let us this, let us this 12 times. Now they govern... The uh, whole uh, sermon, a lot of pastors do that at the end of the sermon. Now, let's therefore do this, or uh, let's remember this. So you get that, let us, uh, where the pastor stands together with these people and, and uh, uh, has the pastoral application. Now, there's a kind of very careful sequence here, which governs the whole of the letter. Uh, first of all, in four verse one, he says it uh, says that we've got to be careful uh, uh, for fear of missing out on entry into God's time and place of rest. Third commandment, Sabbath. Uh, then uh, uh, la- later on, uh, 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 we need to four verse eleven. Uh, Let's strive to enter God's place of rest. 4 verse 14. Let's hold fast to our confession of faith. Now, uh, these are people baptized. They've confessed the faith. If you think in terms of the second article of the Creed, you know, uh, uh, holding on to that, that's the centre of our Christian life and worship, our confession of faith in Jesus as God's Son. And then 4 verse 14, um, uh, 4 verse 16, uh, these these, uh, uh, exhortations culminate in, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Uh, 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 let us hold on to our confession. That's verse 14 and then verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now here you get the central concern of uh, the author, the preacher. Okay, uh, Let us do what? Let us draw near to the presence of God the Father and Jesus to receive grace and mercy. So uh, worship has to do with receiving God's grace, God's mercy uh, for ourselves and others. Then uh, in chapter 6, verse 1, he talks about uh, leaving behind elementary teaching and uh, proceeding to more advanced teaching. Now, elementary teaching, if you say Luther, small catechism, let's get to the large catechism uh, and the uh uh, more mature teaching has to do with understanding um, what God gives to us in the divine service. So it is liturgical, if you like, in that sense. It has to do with the gifts of God to us in word and sacrament. Uh, then there's a big gap. That's number five. Uh, uh, number uh, then the sixth exhortation. Is in 10, verse 20, let us draw near to God with a true heart in the full assurance of faith. Now, this is one of the uh, another very important ones. Drawing near to God is a liturgical term from the Old Testament, approaching God who's present with us in the divine service. And that exhortation is coupled with two others. A repetition of one that was before. Let's hold on to our confession of faith without wavering. And then comes a very interesting one. He said, let's uh, uh, provoke each other. Now, you, normally we provoke each other negatively. But he says, provoke each other to love and good works mm. uh, that come out of our what we receive Uh, in the divine service 12 verse 1 talks about running our race with perseverance the picture of uh, the race of faith the journey of faith with our eyes fixed on Jesus he's the author and finisher of our journey Um, uh, then uh, comes the last three very important ones Um, can I read the uh, tenth one and it's interesting that this is number ten. It's very, very important. Maybe Dr. Kleinig,
0: before before you go there, since that is the most important one, let's go ahead and take our break so we can give that full attention on the other side, all right? Okay. Okay. So So you're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to the pastor to Dr. John Kleinig this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right, LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, You can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, October 2nd. We're studying Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 with the Reverend Dr. John Kleinig. He is Professor Emeritus of Australian Lutheran College in Adelaide, South Australia. Dr. Kleinig, prior to the break, you were taking us through part of the structure of this sermon, 12 let us statements that come from the writer of this sermon. You were about to give us 10 through 12.
1: I think you're going to read number 10 because it's pretty important. Yes, and I read from ESV, um, uh, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, um, uh, this is uh, there's much more here than is given in the translation, Let us be grateful, that's possible, but also let's have grace, use the grace. We've received God's grace and our worship now has to do with uh, people who stand in God's grace. We have grace and therefore we don't need to earn uh, God's approval. Our worship can be characterized by gratitude, so grace, gratitude, so uh, governs worship, uh, let us offer God acceptable worship, um, actually acceptable service. He's talking about the divine service, and acceptable is a little bit weak. You know, for in Australian English, if something is acceptable, it's okay. Uh, but uh, uh, the Greek here means it's well-pleasing. This is the kind of worship that God is well-pleased with, gospel worship. Uh, The service that receives God's grace and responds to God's grace. And we're to do this with reverence and awe, knowing that God's a consuming fire. So we don't presume on God. So acceptable worship. Now that's what Hebrews is all about. What is acceptable worship? God-pleasing worship. It's worship according to the gospel, grace, but it's also worship that's governed by the word of God. And then the eleventh appeal, let us, he says, uh, let's join Jesus where he is, outside the camp. Now he's using a coded Jewish Jewish picture here. It's outside of the Jewish community. Now, um, we uh, that's the place where Jesus is. That's the place where Jesus died. Uh, that's where we join Jesus. The place of shame, persecution. And then comes the last one, chapter 13, verse 15. I'll read that in full. Through him, that's through Jesus, let us continually or regularly offer a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So the uh, worship, the service of God in the New Testament is a the uh, sacrifice, but a sacrifice with a difference. Not a sacrifice to atone for sins, but a sacrifice because our ten sins have been atoned for, and it's now characterized by thanksgiving and praise, confessing uh, God and uh, the name of Jesus. So those are the, the 12 uh, key points in the sequence of the sermon. Um, Now, uh, the climax of the letter is in chapter 12, 18, verse 27, which talks about worship and gives us the theology of worship. It characterises, contrasts the worship in the Old Covenant, which was characterised by uh, uh, fear and uncertainty, um, uh, to worship in the New Testament, where we have access to seven invisible, unshakable gifts. We have access to, not to earthly Jerusalem and the temple there, but heavenly Jerusalem. We have access and we join together with the angels who praise God in his presence. We have access to the church all around the world, which are one big family. And they all have the same status as Jesus, their firstborn sons who inherit everything that belongs to God the Father. We have access to God the Judge, but He's a judge with a difference. He doesn't condemn us, but He justifies us, He forgives us. Very interestingly, we have access to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's the people who've died and gone before us are there with us, and we have access to them in the divine service. But most importantly, worship, uh, our divine service, has to do with the presence of Jesus as the mediator between God and us, and God, uh, us and God. He is the mediator of the new covenant, and his mediation focuses on the bloodful sprinkling that speaks a better word, in the blood of Abel." So it's the blood that speaks pardon, forgiveness, justification, cleansing, mm. holiness. And the speaking blood that we have refers to Holy Communion.
0: Mm. It's very helpful, Dr. Kleinig, to look at the structure, the introduction, the conclusion, the various ways that he goes between exposition and exhortation, particularly these matters of exhortation where he says Do this and also let us. So something to pay attention for as we go through this entire sermon to notice these structural markers and to see the way that this masterful sermon still invites us to hear the voice of Jesus speaking to us through the word. With that in mind, let's take a look at the opening text. So again, we are looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. I'm also reading from the English Standard Version. Long ago, at many times and in many ways... as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's the text for today, Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 4. Right, Dr. Kleinig, as you said, the author doesn't want the attention drawn to himself. He wants, the, he wants the attention drawn to God as the one speaking, and that's where he introduces here in the first two verses. Take us into the, the way
1: that we see God speaking, the way that he d- invites us to hear God speaking now. Yes, it's not just God speaking, but God speaking to our fathers and us. So this is not a uh, uh, cold analysis. This is personal. Okay, uh, God spoke to our fathers and he speaks to us now. Okay, That's the focus. Uh, there's two ways that God speaks and reveals himself to his people. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant beginning with Noah, let's say, or Abraham, he speaks uh, through his prophets. Now, prophets are his spokesmen. They speak the word of God. They hear what God says, and they say, thus says the Lord. And there's no uniformity of this in this because in many different circumstances, God speaks differently in different ways. Ah. Uh, Uh, The prophets receive the word of God in many different ways. I won't go into that. There's there's a multiplicity of God speaking. Uh, But God speaks, if you like, indirectly rather than directly through the mediation of his prophets. Now, those prophets all point to and prepare us for the great prophet, the great apostle, the great spokesman, Uh, uh, Jesus who doesn't just uh, uh, speak on behalf of God but he speaks with the very voice of God so in these last days at the end of the world he has spoken now uh, that's interesting in Greek has spoken perfect tense uh, has the idea it's 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 a particular time in so it's past tense but the perfect indicates and he still speaks So he has spoken, and he still speaks to us through his Son. So if you want to hear the voice of God, uh, you listen to his Son. That's how he speaks. And that's, if you like, as I see it, uh, the main implicit theme of the whole sermon. The voice of God speaking to us, and by speaking to us, delivering God's gifts to us and doing things for us. So uh, there's two of uh, elsewhere in the letter. It's, this is the main theme, uh, and that's made quite explicit in chapter 4, where he talks about the word of God. Um, chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living. It's, and it's active, it's performative. It's effectual, it does what it says, sharper than any two-edged sword. Um, it's like a scalpel um, uh, in the hands of a skilled surgeon, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, uh, God's word, God speaks to us. Uh, Well, uh, Jesus speaks to us. God speaks to us. He doesn't just speak to our ears, but he speaks to our heart, our conscience. And his voice penetrates the very centre of our being and delivers us a good conscience. Okay, so he speaks to us through his Son. And so the... uh, uh, the letter, if you like, culminates, that sermon culminates with the appeal uh, in chapter uh, 12 where he's speaking about, you know, we've come to Mount Zion and he says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking to you from heaven to earth. So uh, Jesus in the new covenant, in the divine service, speaks to us from heaven to earth. And he speaks uh, uh, not just into our ears, but into our heart and into our conscience to deliver um, God and his gifts to us. So the key theme introduced here
0: already in these first two verses is going to come to that climax, as you mentioned, in chapter 12. God is speaking to us through his Son, and then The author goes on to describe who this son is, how he relates to God. What does he say about the son
1: there in verse 2? Okay. Uh, After uh, uh, that first sentence, which, if you like, is the theme of the sermon, he focuses on the son's relationship to the father. And he says, he, the son, um, no, no. Uh, The son whom God appointed as the heir of all things or the heir of the universe through whom he also created the world. So um, what (coughs) qualifies the son to speak with the voice of God to us? On the one hand, he is the heir of his heavenly father. He's son, but he's also heir. The Father has given him everything. This is allusion to Psalm two, um, where uh, uh, at the uh, the coronation of uh, Jesus, uh, this this the Father uh, God delivers everything to the King. So he's the heir of all things, the heir of the world, and. Uh, The son is the heir. Everything that belongs to the father belongs to him. And he then uh, is able, therefore, to deliver his heritage, what he has from the father, he delivers to us. And we are co-heirs with him. We are heirs of the salvation that he has given to us. He becomes a human being to deliver the heritage the inheritance that he has from the father the new covenant uh, in his last will and testament holy communion and uh the second call quali- if you like uh the uh, second qualification for him to uh, be god's spokesman is that he uh, god used him to create the world so god created the whole universe. Everything that is was created by the Father through the Son. Uh, uh, so the Son is the co-creator, God's agent in creation. Uh, he comes then to the world, not as it's uh, somebody alien to it, but as its creator and as its owner, as the one who, uh, uh, to whom the world belongs. So the whole world, uh, uh, He's received the whole universe as His inheritance from His Father. I
0: appreciate you bringing up some language of of the Incarnation and and Christ coming into the world. At least in in the lectionary that we use here, Hebrews chapter 1 is often a text that is heard on Christmas Day, on the the Nativity of our Lord, and those
1: those connections are, are really strong that you're bringing out there. Yes, and you see that quite explicitly in chapter 2 of Hebrews, you know, the incarnation, him uh, uh, taking on human form and his then uh, revealing the Father to us and revealing the gifts of the Father to us here on earth.
0: Now, Dr. Kleinig, we're we're running short on time, which always happens on, on sharper iron, especially when, when I get the chance to talk to, to someone who's studied the book as, as much as you have with the book of Hebrews. And so we've got about eight minutes here. And thinking about the rest of this text, and especially the nature of this being a sermon, one of the things that that comes up in these verses that maybe is sometimes hard for us to appreciate when we're simply hearing them read to us is some of the imagery that the the preacher wants us to have in our minds. A good preacher often uses images and puts a picture in our minds. So looking at at verses 3 and 4, particularly with the language as the ESV translates it, that the sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe, can you help us to see the, the images
1: that we should have in our mind from this part of the sermon? Uh, the first picture, uh, uh, then, uh, uh, okay, the 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 overarching picture here is of the enthronement of Jesus, the man Jesus or the God-Man Jesus, at the right hand side of his Father, which means that he is equal with his Father. Uh, he reigns with his Father. He is reigns as priest and king, like a Melchizedek. He doesn't just reign as king together with his father, but he reigns as our high priest. So he's God's representative to us, king, and priest, he is our representative to God. He represents us. And he is there uh, at the throne in the presence of God, the heavenly presence of God, together with his father. So that's the first picture, or there's two pictures there, of enthronement at the father's right-hand side. Now, uh, in the ancient world, uh, uh, the king's heir, his pri- who was also his prime minister, always sat at his right-hand side. And in fact, in practical terms, he was the one who did most of the work of ruling. He is the right-hand uh, um, uh, man of the, the king. So that's the first picture. So, and uh, uh, Jesus is there as uh, uh, God's right hand man, as priest and king. He sits in the heavenly realm together with uh, God the Father. And uh, uh, then uh, uh, what's qualified him for this work of his as priest and king, together with his father, is first of all who he is or what he is. He is the radiance, the brightness of the father's glory. And he bears the very stamp, the imprint of his father's being. So uh, just think in terms of the light of the sun. We don't see the sun. We see the radiance, the brightness of the sun. You can't look at the sun directly. We don't actually see the sun; we see the radiance, the brightness of the sun. In practical terms, there's no difference between you can distinguish between the sun and its brightness, but you can't separate them. That's the picture here: uh, is that uh, the the sun shows us the Father. Uh, he doesn't show us the Father because He is He uh, uh, is the glory, the brightness the light of the Father, and he bears the very stamp or imprint of his being. Second picture here, or third picture. In the ancient world, uh, uh, oh, and, and, uh, all the letters that you gave and documents were, were sealed with wax. And every person, instead of just having an ordinary ring, marriage ring like mine, had a signet ring. You didn't sign off with your signature, but you uh, uh, put that signet ring in um, ink, and you stamped a document with it, or you stamped, uh, you sealed a letter with your signet ring. So, the, or uh, another picture, if you like, you have a coin, and that coin um, bears the picture of the king. Uh, now, uh, so the the uh, you have a metal die. That's stamped on, the, uh, on the coin. That's the picture here. Jesus has is the exact uh, like. He's not the likeness. He bears the being of the Father. He shows us who the Father is. Uh, he is the exact imprint of the Father's being. He's one in being with the Father, and that's where the Nicene Creed gets. Uh, um, Uh, It's statement of one substance with the Father or one being with the Father. So, uh, the Father and he are one in their being. Uh, Now, the second thing is that uh, uh, as king, he sustains the universe with his powerful word. Jesus, God the Father, didn't just create the world with Jesus through the word, but uh, 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 Jesus sustains the whole world with the word that he spoke and he still speaks. So Luther puts it brilliant. He said, uh, if if, if Jesus stopped saying, let there be light, the whole world would cease to exist. If Jesus stopped saying to human beings, be fruitful and multiply, human beings would no longer be able to procreate. So Jesus can can be our mediator because he's not only our creator, but he also sustains uh, not just Christians, or not just people, but he sustains his whole uh, creation with his powerful word. That word, his utterance, which was spoken, is still being spoken, and it supports and sustains the whole world. And the mm, third yeah. thing is, yeah, sorry, um, is is a picture of cleansing. Now, the whole world fell into sin. It's dirty, it's polluted, and we know all about that as modern people. It's been polluted by human beings, not just physically, but uh, in every possible way in, and including spiritually. Jesus, by his sacrificial death on the cross, uh, has made purification for the sins of the world that has polluted the whole universe from top to bottom. Uh, so, since Jesus is one and being the Father, since he sustains the universe with his powerful word, and since, most importantly, He's made atonement for sin. He can now uh, uh, reign as king together with God the Father. Not just as king, but also as priest. Because the most important thing is um, not his uh, power that he exerts, but the fact that he who cleansed, purified the world, now delivers to people in the world like us, the purity that He won for us. Uh, he purifies us and He purifies our heart, our conscience, uh, so that we can stand together with Him in the presence of God the Father.
0: Now that That is an absolutely beautiful statement of gospel that the writer of Hebrews is going to give to us and develop further. As this sermon continues, we're unfortunately almost out of time, Dr. Kleinig, and we could plumb the depths of this text for so long. But as we conclude, with about a minute here, take us—and maybe this is a good way to to wrap things up. The writer of the Hebrews says in verse 4 that the the name that the Son has is superior to the angels. And that thought of being superior to the angels will come up in the next text that we study. But maybe to, to wrap things up for us this morning,
1: what is this name? That the right. son has received. And that's the lead into the next part and to the rest of the letter. The name uh, that God has given to him is his own name, uh, the Lord, Yahweh. Uh, so uh, uh, Jesus, the, he now is, has the same name as his heavenly father. So the son gives him his name, the Lord, now, in the Old Testament, uh, uh, priests wore the name of the Lord on their foreheads in the uh, tiara that they wore when they—it uh, was part of their vestments. holy to the Lord, holy to the Lord, holy to Yahweh. They bore the name of uh, God on their forehead. If you like, they represented God, and their bodies were temples of. The uh, living God. Now, uh, so they were like God in that respect uh, as priests. Well, Jesus doesn't just wear the name of his Father on him, but he's been given the very name Lord. And through that, then, he gives us access to God the Father and to all the Father's blessings. So everything that we have, we have in the name of Jesus. Not just the name of Jesus, that's the human name, or Jesus as Christ, that's a title representing his anointing as priest and king. Uh, not just a son, he's always had the name son, but the saving name of Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, that's our confession of faith. Jesus, the Son of God, is Lord, and we then approach him uh, as God and divine, and He mediates as Lord between us and His Heavenly Father.
0: The Reverend Dr. John Kleinig is Professor Emeritus of Australian Lutheran College in Adelaide, South Australia. He's been helping us today to study Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. Dr. Kleinig, thank you so much for being our guest today. It's been an utter pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the book of Hebrews, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.